I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, our special guest is Professor Deborah Tannen, a professor, best-selling author, and leading expert on conversational style and how we interact with each other. And later, for our wordplay quiz, we'll try to stump Barry Lamb, host of Slate's philosophy podcast, Hi-Fi Nation. So Ben, it was recently the most wonderful time of the year for sociolinguists, <laughs> and you and I uh, had the pleasure of hanging out at the big conference called New Ways of Analyzing Variation, or N-Wave. For short. So it was the 49th annual meeting of new ways of analyzing variation, N-Wave for short. And this time the conference was held in virtual space. So it was about, what was it, six days of presentations and posters about every type of sociolinguistics you can think of. And uh, Nicole, you had a presentation there as well that uh, that I got to attend, which was really interesting. Yes, thanks for coming. I gave a talk that looked at a Twitter thread with people recording their memojis, like avatars, doing code switching between their quote unquote home voices and their work voices. Um, and it was inspired by this original tweet slash clip from the user at Ebony underscore QT, aka Cindy Noir. Hey y'all, it's your girl Ebony. This is the code switch thread. I want to hear how y'all sound with your regular voice versus when you have to code switch or your work voice. I want to hear the difference. And so I'll go first. Uh, this is how I sound when I'm not clocked in and this is how I sound when I am. Good morning. Thank you for calling. How can I help you? Um, I don't know what else to say, but this is the voice that I tend to use. And so now it's y'all's turn. I want to hear how do y'all sound different? Let me know. So, Nicole, for our listeners who might not know what Memojis are, could you describe what that looks like, this particular tweet, um, while you're hearing that audio? Yeah, so I was just on Twitter, and I came across this thread, and the Memoji is on the iPhone. It's like an animated cartoon version of yourself. It's kind of supposed to look like you, but you can style it to look how you want. And then you put your voice over it, and it moves the mouth. So I was just on Twitter, and I saw this, and I was like, oh, my goodness. She has elicited code switching in the wild in a controlled environment. So we know that everybody's using an iPhone and recording in a fairly quiet environment, probably. And they're giving us demographic information about how they want to be presented. So not necessarily, you know, their actual race or gender or whatever, but like the way that they've styled themselves. So I didn't care that this was Twitter. I care that this was really cool data. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was interested in what the differences in intonation might be between those different styles. And yeah, this was really fun data to look at for that. So I got to say, it's really interesting, too, uh, that Cindy Noir introduces this as code switching, which is, you know, a term that comes out of sociolinguistics, but has somehow made it into the mainstream, right? Yeah. And in fact, uh, the way that linguists and lay people use code switching are different. But I knew what she meant, right? So for speakers of African-American English, which she is, code switching tends to mean like, here's my African-American voice that I use in the community. And here's my voice that I use that's like acceptable to the mainstream. And that's why I liked this data so much, because when you try to get people to do all of the styles that they can do in a laboratory setting, they just can't, right? It's very artificial to be like, now I'm going to talk like I talk with my other friends or like, you know, in my community. Um, so this was a really nice kind of natural experiment. But mine wasn't the only presentation that dealt with this kind of online found data from Twitter. But you went to a few more on Twitter sociolinguistics. And this is especially of interest for you because I remember you writing a piece about 10 years ago for the New York Times, all about the new linguistic research coming out that was based on Twitter data. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, way back in uh, October 2011, so just about 10 years ago, um, I wrote a piece for the Sunday Review section of the New York Times called Twitterology, A New Science. And at the time, linguists and other social science researchers were just figuring out how to mine Twitter for language data. Um, so one thing they realized is that lots of tweets are geocoded. So, for instance, if you tweet from a cell phone, uh, you might be encoding your geographic coordinates. And all that metadata really helped researchers zero in on tweets from specific locations. So, for instance, back in 2011, the Arab Spring was happening. Um, and there were researchers looking at Arabic language tweets coming out of Egypt and Libya and doing what's called sentiment analysis, judging people's moods by measuring the frequency of positive and negative emotion words. Um, and then there were computational linguists who were collecting these geocoded tweets to look at regional language use in the U.S., how, you know, uh, language varies by where you are in the country. Like, for instance, if you're in Northern California, you'll be using the word hella a lot, probably, um, as a form of emphasis. And you can actually measure that and quantify that using Twitter data. Um, so all of this Twitter data that researchers could draw on was many orders of magnitude bigger than uh, what they could ever collect using traditional dialect surveys. How does what you wrote about 10 years ago compare to the Twitterology going on now? Yeah, so at this N-Wave conference, there was a whole symposium called Twitter as a Laboratory for Language Variation and Change. Uh, so Twitterology has really come of age, I guess. This symposium had researchers presenting work from the U.S. and Europe. There were several European researchers there, and they were all grappling with a lot of the same issues as scholars were 10 years ago when it comes to Twitterology. So, for instance, Stefan Grondelaers, who's a Dutch sociolinguist who chaired this symposium, he pointed out that Twitter's great for studying features that are statistically marginal, like emergent language features, features that are just kind of bubbling up for the first time. And you can study geographic variation in ways you just can't do with traditional data collection. And Twitter's also great for capturing stylized language, the way people draw on the expressive potential of certain informal features, at least written features. For instance, you know, how they extend words for emphasis, like, you know, spelling very with a lot of R's, that sort of thing. Yeah, but there's uh, some downsides to relying on Twitter too, right? Yeah, so for starters, it's all written language, um, unless you get lucky and find some spoken data like you did with your amazing code-switching memojis. And even if some tweets have geographic locations in their metadata, there are all sorts of other demographic variables you just can't get to, like, you know, gender, age, educational level. And those factors are all really important for doing sociolinguistic analysis. Uh, it's also hard to figure out how much of people's language use on Twitter is, let's say, performative or stylized in some way. Like, you may use features associated with young people, even if you're not young yourself, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a lot about self-presentation, right? And it can also be hard to track change over time, since you can only really capture a snapshot of Twitter use by collecting a big corpus of tweets at one time, which is what uh, researchers often do. So one thing I was actually interested in learning about at the symposium is that Twitter is now launching an academic research track. So Twitter is actually going to be working with scholars to overcome some of these difficulties in collecting data. That sounds awesome. I'll have to go back and check out some of that Twitter work. 
And I know that on the pod, we are extremely online and we talk about language on Twitter and TikTok a lot. Um, but linguistics and even sociolinguistics is much broader than that. It's just that online sources often have interesting data uh, and new data, and they're definitely of interest to the public. One thing I love about my job is getting to hear all the cool research folks are doing on how language operates and changes in the culture. And I'm glad you got to hear about some great research as well and share it with our listeners. Yeah, it was great to just get the whole breadth of what's happening these days, whether it's online or offline interaction that people are studying in sociolinguistics these days. There are so many cool topics and topics that we will continue to delve into on this show. Stay tuned for our conversation with Professor Deborah Tannen about conversational style. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is Professor Deborah Tannen, university professor and professor of linguistics at Georgetown University. She's also a best-selling author and has written many books, including You Just Don't Understand, and That's Not What I Meant, and You're the Only One I Can Tell. Welcome to the show, Professor Tannen. Hi, what a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you here. I feel like you're a podcast pro in addition to being an expert on conversational style. So maybe Ben and I should be taking lessons from yeah. you. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> I remember reading That's Not What I Meant when I was an undergrad, and it totally changed how I thought about conversations. Uh, in fact, I, like a lot of folks, didn't realize that the linguistic theories I was studying applied to the actual way I was communicating with people around me. So for those who may not be familiar with your work on conversational style, can you give us an idea of what it is and how you got started with this line of research? Yes. When I use the term conversational style, which I guess I was the first one to use it, I'm referring to all the ways that we say what we mean that can differ by part of country you come from, ethnic background, uh, regional background. When I wrote that book, That's Not What I Meant, which was the first book that I wrote for general audiences, a lot of people interviewing me said, well, wouldn't everything be better if people just said what they meant? And my response always was, we do, but we say it in our own conversational style. So it could be things like intonation patterns, how quickly or slowly you speak how relatively direct or indirect you are. You know, do you say, close the window? <laughs> or do you say, gee, it's kind of cold in here, and hope that somebody will understand that you mean close the window. So it's everything about how we say what we mean. So you've gotten some attention recently for your work on conversational style. You recently wrote a piece for the New York Times on a term that you coined, cooperative overlapping. Uh, which was sparked by the fact that the term had actually gone viral on TikTok. Let's actually hear one of the clips uh, of people talking about your work on TikTok. I have always been an interrupty person. When I left the East Coast, I started noticing that that was more of an interpersonal problem than it had been before, and I did a little research. It turns out that linguistics has studied a culturally Jewish conversational style, and one of its primary characteristics is something called cooperative overlapping. It is interrupting that within the in-group, within our culture, is perceived as a sign of engagement. You're overlapping just like at the end of what somebody's saying. You're not trying to cut them off because you don't care what they have to say. You just You already got the gist, and you're building up on it. So to us, good conversation, there aren't any pauses. If there's a pause, I think somebody doesn't want to be speaking to me anymore, unless they're like very visibly like thinking or chewing or something. But to other people, other cultures, that is not the case. To some people, any form of interruption is a major sign of disrespect. The reason so many Goyim can find us grating, think about Bernie Sanders, 
is because of the ways in which our communication style did not assimilate. So that was TikTok user Sari talking about discovering your work about cooperative overlapping and uh, your work on conversational style uh, more generally. So, I mean, can you tell us a bit about how you started working on cooperative overlapping and, you know, how that all came together? Yes, and this will also be my way of answering the part of the first question I didn't answer. How did I get on uh, the topic of conversational style in the first place? And I should say, it totally blew my mind that she picked up that term, which I had used in my academic writing and never used in my writing for general audiences because I try to avoid technical terms. But people seem to be tickled by the technical term. It seemed to be something that made them particularly appreciate having something that they do and didn't realize was a thing uh, identified by an academic term. I started by simply recording conversations. This was with my dissertation in mind at UC Berkeley. And I wanted to look at the conversational styles of each person in the conversation I had chosen um, to see how their use of all those features I call conversational style affected the conversation. I did not set out to look at New York Jewish conversational style, um, but I ended up choosing a conversation that had taken place among six people. I was one, and that was very standard at the time. We always analyze conversations we were part of, because if you came into a conversation you where you weren't part, people wouldn't have a natural conversation. Uh, so this was among uh, six friends. We were all single at the time. Three of us happened to be from New York City and Jewish. That was myself, my best friend, and his brother. And then there were two guests who were from Southern California and one woman who was visiting from uh, from London. My initial intention was to look at the conversational styles of each individual, but it turned out that I was able to analyze the conversational styles of the three New Yorkers, but not of the Californians or the British women because they had a hard time getting the floor. One of the reasons for that was uh, just how long a pause you expect between turns. Anytime two people speak, the one who was waiting for the longer pause has a hard time because the one expecting a shorter pause thinks nobody has anything to say and, you know, fills that pause. But also it was this phenomenon of cooperative overlapping that we frequently talked along to show engagement, as, as you just heard. And it was really a way of encouraging the speaker to continue. But it was misinterpreted by the uh, non-New Yorkers as trying to take the floor because we were beginning to speak while they had the floor. I really like to make a distinction between cooperative overlapping and interruption. Uh, it really is not an interruption. When you think about it, an interruption is, a, is when somebody wants to take the floor that is rightly someone else's. If you talk along to show encouragement, you're not taking the floor. And another thing you can think about, for an interruption to occur, two things have to happen. One person begins and the other stops. When the New Yorkers talked along, the other didn't stop, so there was no interruption. Um, but if uh, a New Yorker began speaking while the Californian was speaking to show enthusiasm, they would stop. And so a way to look at it is the interruption was created by the difference in styles not by something that one person did. In my dissertation, I did not call it New York. I did not call it Jewish, although the three of us were New York Jews, but high involvement style. It was part of a whole network of ways of using language that puts the emphasis on showing your involvement. 
and I say the emphasis is placed on involvement. It doesn't mean every individual at every moment thinks, I'm going to be involved, so I'm going to say this. It's the way we have come to use language, which we learned growing up, just the way we learn our native language as kids. Um, the conventions place that emphasis on showing involvement. So talking along, leaving short pauses, telling more personal stories, having more extreme intonational patterns, sometimes being very loud, sometimes being quieter, uh, and often very long pauses, but the pauses would be within a turn for dramatic effect and, and many other aspects of what I call high involvement style. I was going to ask you about high involvement style because it's this has been an issue that's been vexing me since we've been in Zoom world. I'm so curious what you think that this technology is doing to all of us who are high involvement. I'm high involvement. I cannot stand a half a second pause on Zoom. So when I meet with my students, I'm like, any questions? And then I can't even leave one second before I start talking again because I'm so anxious. But Zoom also and other platforms prevent you from overlapping because of the way that they highlight the mic of the speaker. So if you start speaking, even just to do a back channel like uh-huh or yeah or like agree, if you do anything verbal, you'll end up taking the floor from the person who's speaking. So I'm interested in how you think uh, the sort of Zoom universe has affected our ability to do all of this. When we are in Zoom, and this actually started happening with cell phones, where you can't overlap because only one voice can be heard, it makes conversation feel stilted. So people who want to talk along to show enthusiasm and can't feel that they have to kind of sit on themselves. And if it, you do it kind of automatically, you might end up cutting somebody off, which you didn't intend to. But it's one of a whole range of ways that Zoom interaction has been bizarre. In some ways, it makes it actually easier for people to have comfortable conversations with varying styles. Because if your sense of rhythm or your sense of how long a pause should be makes it hard to get the floor, you can get the floor on Zoom by clicking on that hand raise function or waving your hand. So that may be weird in a face-to-face -face conversation, but it's quite standard on Zoom. So in some ways, it's actually better for conversations, but certainly frustrating for those who uh, feel the urge to bubble up with cooperative overlapping and, and can't. Yeah, I think for me, it's definitely, I mean, I, there's some like personality stuff going on, but also like I'm, you know, I speak African American English and I speak mainstream English. And so I'm balancing those. And definitely when I'm speaking AAE, it's to me feels more high involvement. Deborah, in your books, you focus specifically on certain types of relationships, for example, between spouses or uh, between mothers and daughters. Do you think certain types of relationships are ripe for mismatches of conversational styles? And how much individual variation is there in how people use and respond to different styles? There's a, a broad range. I mean, it's from tiny little differences maybe between siblings or people who grew up in the same community to vast differences, people who speak different languages and grew up in vastly different cultures. Uh, but I think the reason I've written so many books about family relationships, I started out and that's not what I meant, just not thinking of any particular relationships, just people talking to each other. Uh, but then I ended up kind of focusing on the kind of romantic relationships because so many people have issues with that. Then at work, because it's a context where people have um, experiences that are frustrating. Uh, and then I moved to uh, adult family relationships in a book called I Only Say This Because I Love You. And it was the mother-daughter relationship called You're Wearing That. The reason I think those 
those relationships are often the ones we have issues with. It's not so much the ways of speaking as the intensity of the relationship and the different perspectives. So, for example, uh, with mothers and daughters, the biggest complaint of daughters was my mother's critical. And the biggest complaint of mothers was I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism. And that was kind of emblematic because, and this is, I think, kind of linguistics, that people tend to think words can only mean one thing. So if I feel criticized and you tell me you weren't criticizing, you're disingenuous. If I know I didn't intend to criticize and you tell me that I, you think I was, you're oversensitive. But once you realize that the same words can mean both, you know, I'm just trying to help. I want everything to go as well as it can for you. Yeah, well, if you give somebody advice or offer help or tell them, make suggestions how they can improve, that's criticism. <laughs> they wouldn't need suggestions for improvement if you didn't think they were doing something wrong. But that doesn't mean it isn't caring. A key concept in all the books that I've written about close relationships, uh, it all comes down really to, do you care about me? And how are you showing you care about me? So it, it is a kind of miscommunication, but maybe not so much the mechanics of language as the way we're using it in conversation. Well, Professor Deborah Tannen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, is there anything else you uh, would like to share with our listeners? What I'd like to leave people with is the idea... It's so important to know there are conversational style differences because it gives you a way to step back before you draw negative conclusions. So uh, in, in a diverse society, as we fortunately have, it's even more important constantly. <clears throat> before you come to a negative conclusion, stop for a second. Could there be a conversational style difference? And, and it gives you the way to try to speak differently so that others will speak differently to you. Thank you so much, Professor Deborah Tannen. After the break, it's time for some wordplay. Welcome back. Now it's the time of the show where we play with language. Today, we're joined by another of our fellow Slate podcasters, Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College and host of Hi-Fi Nation, a philosophy podcast that turns stories into ideas. Barry recently launched season five of Hi-Fi Nation, beginning with a mini-series about the life and times of David Lewis, one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. Welcome to Spectacular Vernacular, Barry. Hi, so happy to be here. We're, we're really glad you could join us, and I, I've really been enjoying your series on David Lewis that you've been doing for Hi-Fi Nation. He's a really fascinating figure. I'm, I'm really intrigued by him, and I have to admit, I didn't really know anything about him before um, I started listening to your podcast. And I have to say, it's appropriate that you're joining us for a language game here on Spectacular Vernacular, because one of David Lewis's most cited papers is called Scorekeeping in a Language Game. Could you tell us a bit about Lewis's importance in the field of philosophy and why that paper in particular is so often cited? David Lewis was important in many areas of philosophy, but one of the areas was in the philosophy of language, which is completely continuous with linguistics, theoretical linguistics. And David Lewis's earliest works were on the conventions of language and the conventions of conversations, what we would now call today pragmatics. In fact, scorekeeping in a language game is uh, one of these earlier papers in which he likens the rules of conversation to the rules of baseball, was one of the kind of foremost papers in pragmatics. The field of research that came out of scorekeeping in a language game and papers like that from other people ended up being the 
kind of things that we actually today explicitly teach people, sometimes neuroatypical people, people who are autistic in special education programs, about how it is. So people who are neurotypical just know the rules, right? We don't contradict each other at every point. We kind of get the social interactions. But people who don't need explicit rules, and David Lewis was one of the first people to articulate the list of explicit rules that when somebody doesn't know them, if they follow them, we'll have a conversation kind of like we are right now. So that was his importance. And based on your podcast, it sounds like David Lewis was the type of person who really needed to think explicitly about how those rules work, right? That's right. David was never diagnosed with anything. You know, this was in the 60s and 70s. But his friends say he was a person who, when you were in his presence, you knew that he was different, that he didn't know how to converse normally. You can talk about specific intellectual topics that were raised. But if you asked him things like, how are you enjoying the weather today? Something to that effect he'd have to sit there and think for about a minute before he figured out how to answer. And, you know, his friends today that I spoke to think, you know, throughout his life, I could see him actually doing computations and calculations in his head about exactly what the rules are that's happening, that I should say this. Is this a small talk moment? Is this an important talk moment? That kind of thing. Okay, Barry, it's time for us to do some of our own scorekeeping in a language game, as David Lewis would put it. In recent episodes, we've brought on some other fellow Slate podcasters, Chris Melanfi from Hit Parade, Rachel Hampton and Madison Lone-Kircher from ICYMI. Uh, we had Chris come up with songs and albums that had the word emo in their titles. And Rachel and Madison looked for internet abbreviations hiding in lines from TikTok videos. Now, you're going to have your own discoveries to make. Uh, you're going to need to find the names of philosophers hidden in some musical items that we'll be presenting to you. And just so you know, we're not going to be talking about Monty Python's Philosopher's Song. That will not be one of the items that you'll be hearing. And as a tribute to David Lewis, we'll be doing some time traveling and exploring some alternate realities along the way. How does that sound? That sounds great. It sounds really hard. Oh, I, I think you'll be okay with it. And um, based on one earlier episode... Uh, that I heard, I gather that you're a bit of a music fan. I was listening to something from way back in season one of High Fi Nation, The Cops of Pop, where you talk about the philosophy of music and mashups in particular. So yeah. so I gather from that you're you're a music fan? I am. Well, great. Okay. And don't worry, we'll help you out if you have any trouble recognizing the musical clips we'll be playing for you. So let's start with this one. Imagine, if you will... A noted 18th century German philosopher transported to the year 2011, and he discovers that his name is hiding in the title of a number one hit from that year. The song is by a duo who happened to be the son and grandson of Motown Records founder Barry Gordy, and the philosopher's name is spelled consecutively somewhere inside the song title. Well, I know the song. I, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was inescapable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know the as, song. As the summer of 2011, 10 years yeah. ago. I, don't, I didn't know that there were things spelled out. In the, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I know, obviously I know the song. I, I, so there was there a 18th century philosopher's so name spelled the, out? Okay, so what is the song called? I have no idea what the song is called. I know it's LMFAO, right? The song is uh, Party Rock Anthem by LFMAO. So, and you heard them uh, talking about party rock in there in the lyrics. 
So if you take party rock anthem, can you find spelled consecutively an 18th century German philosopher? And it's, it's, it might bridge words. So it could be like a letter at the end of one word and then some letters at the beginning of another word. All right. You're making me actually have to spell it out <laughs> and then looking right at it. Oh, my God. Okay, so it's got to be Kant, right? There you go. We found it. <laughs> okay. I had to actually look at the words to get that one. So next up, imagine an alternate world where an Italian philosopher who was also known as a novelist secretly collaborated with a quirky American pop star in the 1980s. And the result was this song, which hides his name in the title. Is the song ringing a bell for you? No, it's not. I don't... I was going to ask if you recognize the singer. Does she sound familiar? Gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I, I like a, uh, I'm a music fan, but so I still this is a ballad. Yeah. Oh, this is this is oh this is True Colors by uh, by uh, Cindy Lauper. Yes, yes. Can I have a hint? Is it just his surname? Yes, just yes, the surname. Just the last name. Okay, True Colors. Would this be Echo? Yes. Okay. Umberto, Umberto Echo, Echo <laughs> philosopher, novelist. Yes. I think that probably gave it away. The novelist. Part. Yeah. Okay. Let's move from pop music to orchestral music. Oh. Okay. How do you feel about orchestral music? I don't know. It sounds like I'm not even good at identifying pop. So I'd be even worse at orchestral. But we'll try. We'll try. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll help you along with this one. More time travel for you. Imagine a 17th century English philosopher time traveling to 1954 when an English composer wrote a piece of music showcasing a large brass instrument accompanied by an orchestra. And imagine the philosopher's surprise to find his name hiding in the common title of this composition. So for starters, what is that large brass instrument that you're hearing? That's the tuba, correct? That is indeed the tuba. And so this, this, uh, this particular composition, um, which is by Rafe Vaughn Williams, is known as the Tuba Something. Oh, gosh. The Tuba Something. Yes. A, a kind of composition where an instrument is featured and with an orchestra backing it up. Mm-hmm. The, let me see. Uh, and you said it was a 17th century English philosopher? That's right, and his name may possibly begin with B.A. from Tuba. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're trying to give me the answer, and, it, and, like, and I'm stuck on every single part of the question right now. Okay. There's right. no planet on which I would have gotten this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is a tough one for sure, for sure. Would you like to know the, the full title of, of the, uh, that work? It's, uh, it's yeah. Rafe Von Williams' Tuba Concerto. So yeah. who might be hiding in Tuba Concerto? Tuba Concerto... Oh, gosh. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Because, see, I'm thinking about philosophers of that era, and I'm not not seeing it in the tuba concerto, right? So, like, I'm thinking... Start with the B in tuba. Yeah. What do you got? Oh, 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 oh. Francis Bacon. (laughs) Ta-da. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm, th- I'm thinking of, yeah, I'm thinking of like Hobbes. I'm thinking of Locke, like these like f- political philosophers. Yeah. Okay. You're a philosopher and you overthought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. All right. So we have one more for you. Imagine an alternate reality where a famous French philosopher didn't die young in 1960, but instead stayed alive and moved to the Caribbean 
where he really got into a genre that blends soul and calypso. And you can find his name in a two-word phrase for the genre. Here's a sample. So do you have an idea? Uh, I don't know what this piece is, <laughs> once again. Um, well, it's a, yeah. it's a style of music, and uh, you, if you heard the singer, whose name was yeah. Lord Shorty, uh, singing it, he may have uh, given one of the words that you're looking for in the title of the song. So soca is the, is the genre that blends soul and calypso. In fact, I think soul? it takes the so calypso. from soul and the ka from calypso. So if soca something, uh, as the name of the genre, what do you think would be a, the second word of a phrase to describe that genre, soca? Musica? Soca music in yeah, English. Soca music. Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. So soca music is uh, Camus. There you uh, go. C-A-M-U-S. That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was tough, Barry. Yeah, that was hard. Maybe My God. quiz yet, but you did a really good job. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming out and playing our quiz. Thank you for having me. Now we have a challenge for our, all of our listeners. Here's a song that hides the names of not one, but two philosophers in its title. The first one famously promoted the philosophy of objectivism. And the second one combined philosophy and psychology to come up with concepts like synchronicity. You can find both of their names in the title of this raucous doo-wop song, which was a hit back in 1956. I jumped out the pot and I finally got away, frantic and worried about what my baby would say. So I jumped in the ocean and started to swim, for my chance of survival was getting mighty slim. So I thumbed down a whale who was in my way And I reached the states in about a half a day And when I got to Lover's Lane, I was all... Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include the names of the two philosophers and the title of the doo-wop song that hides their names. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription, and we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. Once again, that's spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line, and please respond by midnight Eastern time on November 17th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our October 26th episode. Penelope Lee of Stratum, New Hampshire, figured out that the internet abbreviation hiding in the TikTok line, I like you, go to heaven is O-T-O-H, short for, on the other hand. Congratulations, Penelope. Thanks to Barry Lamb for joining us. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. And thanks again to Deborah Tannen for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is managing producer and Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening.